and welcome to this week's episode of Creaky Chair Film Podcast, the show where we discuss all things film, classics and obscurities, courtroom dramas to police comedies, from 12 Angry Men to Naked Gun 33 and a Third. My name is Michael Brooks. I'm here with my uh, co-hosts, Sam Oliver and Bill King. Hello. Hello. Uh, on this week's episode, we are going to be talking about the new legal drama, The Mauritanian, from director Kevin MacDonald. It stars Tahar Rahim, Jodie Foster and Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, it's based on the best-selling memoir, Guantanamo Diary, by Mohamedou Oud Salahi. The film has been nominated for Best Picture and uh, a few other awards as well. Before we get into that, though, uh, we are going to talk uh, a little bit about some news from the last week. I've got a, a piece of news. I don't know whether you guys saw this. Netflix has put down $469 million dollars for the rights to the sequels to which 2019 film? Oh, I haven't seen it. 469 million is an insane figure for anything. Um, 2019. Mm-hmm. I like how specific the figure is. You know, and it couldn't oh, just yeah. make it an even 470. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I didn't round up. There's some <laughs> <hard> negotiations <laughs> on the last million. Yeah. <laughs> I know I know it, um, and I really enjoyed the film. Oh, I really enjoyed is it, the film. So it's 2019. Um, is it The Lighthouse? <laughs> <laughs> but um very good very good no it's not unfortunately um how would it be? yeah sequels to the lighthouse that would be that'd be interesting it? <laughs> no it is knives out uh, oh cool so knives out two and a three could well be coming uh, it works out at 234.5 million dollars per film uh and this is this is way more than uh, the $160 million that was spent on The Irishman uh, and quite a lot more than the four-film deal they did with Adam Sandler in 2014, which was $250 million for four films. Yeah, so the commentary about this is all about franchise building, isn't it, really? Um, and it does make you think, could you know, could Daniel Craig become the next uh, Harrison Ford being the star of two blockbuster franchises? What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, it lends itself because it's a detective, you know, if it, it's him just getting into another case, um, you know, he goes on holiday maybe and gets involved because I, th- I thought it was a strong character um, and pretty memorable accent and performance. And yeah, get him, get another good cast around him, another another interesting case. I think, yeah, it could, it could, yeah, lend itself really well to see. Yeah, absolutely. I think like, because obviously the, the Knives Out worked really well because it was an interesting kind of true crime caper like a hercule poirot kind of thing and it seemed like all the cast like a really incredible cast were all having a really great time doing it so i think like if they can recreate that magic then i'd absolutely be first in line to see that like and also yeah daniel craig's accent in that film alone is worth at least 150 million right i'll be disappointed if there's less vomiting in this one Oh yes, I, I hope Ryan Johnson is aware that that's what we're here for. Yeah, like you get, they always say with sequels, you know, go bigger and better. So let's let's have more. Let's have more people being sick, Ryan, and more of um, if Chris Evans is in it again, nicer jumpers for him, yes. bigger jumpers, better knitwear. Just really go all in on the things that we enjoyed about Knives Out. That's where that budget can go. That four six nine can go on real high thread yeah. count on his knitwear. Oh yeah, some proper alpaca yeah. knitwear. <laughs> I do. I really enjoyed Knives Out, like like a lot of people did. I think there is the sense always with a little bit of scepticism about it. You know, the fact that can you capture that sort of lightning in the bottle the second time around, the third time around? I don't know. Maybe they will, but it seemed like one of those films that had everything. Everything just sort of came together really well. All the elements were were really playing together really nicely in a way that's hard to replicate. Yeah, I think it is hard to replicate. But I feel like I almost feel like if even if the film doesn't manage to 
have the same like wow energy that Knives Out had. I think even if it is just uh, pretty by the numbers, but very engaging, like true crime detective thing with great actors that's directed and looks well, like it'll be worth watching. Like it won't be as good as, but I think it's definitely worth seeing where they go with it. Yeah. Uh, and while we're talking about Netflix, then the other big news this week is that they have they've emerged the winner of a nearly two year auction for the exclusive American rights to stream Sony Pictures theatrical releases from next year, which is uh, yeah fairly big news. So all the films from various Sony branches, so Columbia Pictures, TriStar, will stream exclusively on Netflix after their theatrical and home entertainment releases. the The empire continues. <laughs> Stream Wars episode four. Um, so, right, so we've got Walt's Frozen Head has 20th Century Fox. <laughs> Netflix then has Sony TriStar and everything. And as, does Amazon have like a deal with Warner Brothers? Because you can see them starting to, the, the market's getting cornered there with the big studios. Yeah. Personally, I think Apple, um, their, their streaming thing, I think they're done. I don't think they're going to make any waves. I, th- I can't see them lasting. But I think, yeah, you will have those those big big three um i reckon because i think hbo max is doing something but i don't know whether they're going to go into theatrical releases i think that'll be television and i can see them doing a deal in the end with one of those but yeah i think i think that's all the corners sort of set now um because i I was kind of waiting to see which one would get the deal with sony um and yeah netflix getting that but it's it's just the, the same as the big studio system really we're now seeing it with the streamers i think it was pretty inevitable Yes, Bill, you've made all the points there. Very <laughs> astute reasoning. Okay, so uh, we are going to discuss uh, The Mauritanian now. This is a new legal drama. It's directed by Kevin MacDonald, uh, director behind Touching the Void, The Last King of Scotland, How I Live Now, and most recently, uh, Whitney, the documentary about Whitney Houston. Uh, it's based on a memoir, Guantanamo Diary, which is based on Mohamedou al Salahi's time spent in the Guantanamo Bay detention camp, uh, which uh, was a total of 14 years without being charged with a crime, uh, having been taken from his home in, in Mauritania in 2002, and believed to have helped, having helped recruit the 20th hijacker of the 9-11 attacks. So Taha Rahim plays Salahi, uh, Jodie Foster and Charlene Woodley play defence lawyers who decide to take up his case in a trial that aims to force the US government to produce evidence justifying his detention. And Benedict Cumberbatch plays Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Couch, a military prosecutor who is also trying to build a cast iron case for the prosecution. And the film unfolds with them both pursuing their respective cases, uh, but also with flashbacks to Slahi's time in the camps undergoing enhanced interrogation <clears throat> torture. Uh, so what did you think about this this film? Sam, do you want to, do you want to start us off? Yeah, um, so this is embarrassing. I misheard you last week and thought you said The Martian. So I've just got loads of comments about Matt Damon on Mars, <laughs> unfortunately. Ha 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 ha, that's just a light joke before we get into talking about some very deep, intense things. Um, so yeah, The Mauritanian. I think I've always got a little bit of a apathy towards legal dramas. I think there are some incredible legal dramas out there and there's some that are really fantastic films. But then I think more often than not, they do end up, if they're not 
to that high standard, I feel like they do kind of fall into the generic tropes that you get in legal dramas of here's the scene where the prosecution starts realizing that their case might not hold as much water as it used to. And here's the scene where the defense team that you're kind of rooting for realize they don't have the case they want and they need to find that one piece of evidence. And I think the Mauritanian by and large manages to kind of avoid being that sort of by the numbers cliche legal drama. But I think the moments where it does fall into that are the weakest moments for me. I think all all of the stuff, um, I really, really enjoyed all of the things with Tahir Rahim. I thought he was absolutely sensational. And every single scene that he was in, I couldn't take my eyes off of him. I thought he was an absolutely a powerhouse performance in this. And I think to capture that character so completely was amazing because there is moments towards the start where you find yourself sort of not really knowing where you sit with him as a character, whether you're kind of siding with him, like whether you can trust him or not. And you kind of find yourself at the start initially going on the same journey that the defense team, Jodie Foster is going on of trying to work out what he's all about. But then you get to know him more as a character through these flashbacks. Um, And I just thought like every single moment that he was in not only do you see him giving an incredible performance but those were also the moments I felt where the film made its own mark on what it was doing those were the moments where it felt like it wasn't just a by the numbers legal drama the moments that were just Benedict Cumberbatch pestering his friends his friend at various parties to release documents or Jodie Foster and um, Charlene sitting in that room reading redacted redacted documents and being annoyed at the government withholding information those felt a bit by the numbers and a bit kind of I've seen this a thousand times over and I'm seeing it very well done and I'm seeing it very highly produced but it kind of just I found myself wanting to get back to what for me was the meat of the story which is what was happening in Guantanamo Bay and what was being covered up by the US government. That does, I do think that I loved how ultimately kind of totally 100% anti-American and anti-Guantanamo Bay the film was. I think towards the start, I was thinking like, oh, I wonder where this film's going to lie. Like, will it kind of try and play devil's advocate a bit? Will it try and kind of toe the line a little bit? But I really enjoyed that it very much kind of went all in on how horrific a lot of the stuff that people experienced at Guantanamo Bay was. I think the the final third of the film, I don't want to go into too much about what's happening. I feel like, you know, the story's already out there, so you might already have an understanding of where the film goes in, in the final third. But for me, the final third was sensational. I thought the final third of the film was where everything that had been set up and everything that had been built really came together very powerfully. And some of the scenes that were a little bit more um, experiential and a little bit more visceral, like where you could really sense what these characters were going through and the way the filmmaking was, I felt like I was, yeah, it was a totally unique experience I was having. And I think that was really nicely peppered throughout. So one of the moments that really that really sticks with me in my head is when um, you see Mohamedou outside in the detention center speaking to his friend Marseille through the bars and he's talking about um living near the sea and how when he gets back home he's going to be lying in his bed listening to the sea and there's this beautiful shot of him 
leaning on the bars and just sort of waving his hand and just imagining listening to the sea back home. And it's shot in just this really beautiful but really simple way that really just gives you a sense of what this character's going through. And it's just such a nice experiential moment that I think is then played on really really intensely in some of the final scenes where you, again, experience the horrors that he's going through along with him. Some of the scenes of the the torture that he experienced are, I think, future fodder for a most disturbing films episode, if I'm perfectly honest. Some of that stuff was very, very, very effective. So yeah, kind of in summation, I think it's a, it's, it's, it was a much better film than I was expecting it to be. And I think the moments where it avoids legal drama cliches and where it talks about it does a more deep dive into um, the more engaging aspects of the story and about Guantanamo Bay and about all of that horrible things that went on there. That for me is where the film really took off and really went into kind of the engaging territory I was looking for. So I think it's definitely worth your time. Um, But I did find that it's almost two thirds of essential scene setting and essential kind of world building to get to an incredible final third. Interesting. Bill, what did you think? Well, I don't know whether this is just because I want to repair my friendship with Sam after our falling out over Mank, but I actually agree with everything he just said uh, about the Mauritanian, um, especially about the first two thirds. I think it was effective, um, but not overly showy. But I did, I did believe the first two thirds of the film were quite procedural. Um, I was really looking forward to it, and I did think it was kind of just going through the 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 numbers and, and box ticking and that might be because it was trying to tell a true story so I thought you know the the scenes when it was just Benedict Cumberbatch and Jodie Foster going through cardboard boxes full of evidence weren't overly um, effective or it didn't really didn't really get me going but then in the the final third when it sort of changed into a bit of a horror movie when you saw the the things that were going on in Guantanamo Bay and it became quite horrific then I think it really jumped up a notch in terms of quality. And then I, I, I enjoy is probably the wrong word, but then I do think it became a, a very good film indeed. I've got to say it was um, a great cast. I thought Jodie Foster and especially Tahar Rahim were fantastic. I thought Tahar Rahim played the character really interestingly and in, you didn't always know his motivations. You didn't know most of the way through, did this guy do it? But you still empathized with him and you felt very sorry for him, obviously, but you kind of liked him. He was very likable. He was very charismatic, very natural as well. And I think the point at which I started to really enjoy the film was when um, Jodie Foster, at his character, and Tyrone Rahim's character, had this huge argument back and forth in, in his cell and the lights starting to flicker. And I just sat back and thought, wow. That is uh, that is some acting there. I uh, yeah, I was very impressed with that. As I say, I didn't think it was overly flashily directed, but then there was something I noticed, which I thought was a really interesting um, style that they brought in, which was the aspect ratio switched for the flashback scenes. So the aspect ratio is the the size of the image with the black bars on on your screen. You know, when you have like widescreen and whatnot. And the aspect ratio switched um, in the flashback to a 4.3, which is a sort of narrower sort of portrait style. And that put to me um, in mind of that I felt like I was in a cell or looking through a cell. You had this feeling of confinement, this narrow field of vision. I'm not sure that that was a filmmaker's intent, um, 
guess it doesn't matter because that's that's what I what I got from it. Um, I also I asked a camera operator about this, and I think it was anamorphic, which means they've not shot it that way. They've actually gone back and and adjusted the image so it's all framed up nicely. That's for any of you um you you camera nerds out there. But yeah, I thought that was a really really effective way of of framing the um the flashbacks and really kept it um clear in my head as a viewer as I was watching it of where I was in the story as it was going back and forth um and I also noticed when he was thinking even further back to his his childhood on the Maritania it was a lot more um blurred the the uh the, the shots so that that sort of gave it this this sort of Hallison glow and um bittersweetness which I which I thought was yeah really really effective way of shooting it without being too overly without being too overly flashy uh, other things I noticed about it was I, it really the the setting of of Gitmo? So where Guantanamo Bay was in the film, it it kind of made me feel disorientated because it was so beautiful around there. You had these shots of the surf going back for miles and these beautiful beaches, and then this dystopian, awful fortress where the most shocking affronts to civil liberties and and habeas corpus have been uh, committed, and and it's in this beautiful setting. So it, it kind of put me in mind of the, like this futuristic sci-fi dystopia sort of thing but then it, it it hit home these things that actually happened so that that was that was really quite shocking to me and i think this plays into something else i, I thought when watching the film is i really think the film showed the importance of film in that i had read a lot about this subject and i'd read the news reports and i think i'd even read um a lot of the, the the prisoners accounts of the time in in guantanamo but it didn't really hit home to me how bad it was until I saw this film and you've got these visceral images getting seared into your brain, which I think will stay with me. And I think that shows the importance of film in conveying that because this will reach a wider audience and is, is it incredibly effective way of, of getting across just the, the sheer horrors of what took place in, in Guantanamo Bay, which reading a news report or, or um, even seeing a documentary, I don't think gets across it as well. And I think that's that's something to be said for a, you know, a fictionalized account um, for bringing this to a wider audience and, and really, you know, hitting it home. So I think, I think that's, that's very important. As I say, I thought those, bits of the film were the most um the most effective and the most important in that in that final third it all came together and you you realize this stuff actually happened and it's not ancient history it happened pretty recently in our lifetimes so yeah all in all i think first two thirds it was a it was a good film it was it did what it did fine but then i think the final third it really jumped up to me for a to a to a five-star film and worthy of awards and recognition that said all the way through i thought taha rahim's fantastic and and i hope he's got a a, a big uh, big future ahead of him in in films because i've not seen him in a lot and i think this is a real star making role um one final point i have to bring up is thought it's unbelievable that Guantanamo Bay has a gift shop. Surely that is the worst gift shop in the world, or at least the worst place to have a gift shop in the world. (laughs) There is one at Auschwitz. Yeah, that's awful. The American ability to uh, place a gift shop anywhere is quite incredible. Yes, it is. Yeah. I just wanted to start by kind of going back to something that, that Sam said about how, you know, you weren't sure where this was going to fall in terms of how is it going to pitch it? Is it going to play devil's advocate or is it going to go really kind of sort of anti? Uh, and I remember 
it put me in mind of I think I think Bill we may have had an argument about this at the time about Catherine Bigelow's Zero Dark Thirty, uh, which was very controversial at the time. Lots of lots of people loved it. Lots of critics sort of denounced it at the time for presenting what appeared to be at best a grim acceptance of and at worst a glorification of the use of torture uh, in leading up to the uh, discovery of Bin Laden, which was was a false premise. This film, I think, is a very necessary corrective on what is definitely one of the darkest chapters in America's modern history or, or any country's modern history. I agree with both of you. Yeah, it was a really important film, that one that everyone should watch. And it, yeah, like you, like you say, Bill, it's the power of film to kind of convey these, these horrors in a way that you know, perhaps a, a book or a documentary or newspaper just doesn't doesn't do quite so powerfully. It helps you to understand kind of what you know what great and powerful nations are capable of doing with impunity. You know, the very basic principles of habeas corpus can be discarded. And fair to say, I I was gripped by the film. I was I was completely engrossed all the way through. I don't think I felt quite the same way about the sort of two thirds, one third of the. That you both did, but I can, I can certainly recognise how how you you know how you could come to that view. Definitely, um, I don't think it's a perfect film by any means. I think, and here I think I'm in danger of maybe critiquing a different film from the one that was actually made. Um, but there are lots of things that I at the time and subsequently when thinking about it, where I felt like it could have it could have taken a different direction or it could have been handled differently. You know, I, I agree with you. It is quite generic in its narrative arc. It's not necessarily bad, but you know, I can't help but think how this story could have been represented in a more innovative and imaginative way. And I think that probably comes down to the fact that Kevin McDonald, you know, he's coming from a more documentary background, isn't he? He's, he's done a lot of documentaries. You know, for example, he could have completely embedded you in Guantanamo Bay without diverting to the to the lawyer's side plot until later on. You know, it could have really embedded you there. And you know, I would have quite liked a lot more taking you inside those awful windowless cells where the prisoners are kept for like 23 hours a day. You know, the film barely spent any time really in there, but I'd have liked to have seen it try to represent the kind of mental destabilisation that would occur in those sorts of conditions. And it's one of my favourite prison films is uh, Papillon, you know, the film with Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman. And I think that does really that does really well, that film, in making you feel the kind of awful sort of stretching out of time spent in isolation and solitary confinement. So when the characters, you know, when Steve McQueen starts to visibly age and disintegrate mentally, you've, you, like you say, Sam, the word you use, experiential, you've got that sense of, you've kind of, be, you've, you've sensed it a lot more in a way that I don't think this film quite captured. Yeah, and there are certain bits as well that I think definitely could have benefited from a little more exposition. So the fact that he, under interrogation, he explains that he joined Al-Qaeda in the early 90s to fight against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, which, you know, was a conflict that America supported and, you know, trained, the Mujahideen, as they were at the time. You know, it kind of assumes, that it kind of glosses over that a little bit, but it assumes that everyone who's watching is going to know that and the important context, which, I don't know, it could easily be lost. I think the, the lighting was excellent, as you, as you say, as you both said, as you know, the sound design and the production, I thought was really well done as well. Particularly in that main scene that you know we've you, you've both you've both talked about, the hallucinations are really well done. And without sounding kind of macabre or voyeuristic, I almost feel like the film could have benefited from a like a bit more of that section. You know, given that it is re- it is meant to represent seventy de- you know, the seventy days that he endured this, I kind of feel like you know for the film to be fully kind of effective it needed you know maybe just five minutes more of like kind of really you just throwing this kind of horror at you i don't know i thought the performances are excellent the character dilemmas are really well drawn uh i would really liked a little bit more of the kind of the sense of danger and the hostility to jodie foster's character the nancy hollander um you know you only really get a sort of minor quite 
sort of cartoonish sense of it with the placard waving crowd outside the courthouse you know you get the sense that doing that kind of work would come with an awful lot of personal risks and i don't think that really the film really explored that yeah all things said yeah i agree with you this is a really important film very moving especially the you know the way the the end credits is handled i was quite tearful to be quite honest with you yeah just really vital film it's not perfect it's not doing anything groundbreaking or particularly daring with the story but the story enough is compelling um particularly with the the excellent performance that's uh, at the center of it like what you were saying though is it, if you're someone that if somebody is watching this film and doesn't necessarily know the history of guantanamo bay and hasn't done any sort of reading or just hasn't been made aware of this i think it is a very important film to kind of like open up that whole kind of that history to people and that very recent history. You both mentioned that even though the film isn't perfect by any means, the idea that somebody could would watch this film, it's obviously doing quite well, is on is on Amazon for free and so forth and is very accessible and is doing a lot of good in awards season. The idea that somebody that might not have that understanding and might not know any of that could watch this and have their eyes opened up to all of it is, I think, very important and kind of almost glosses over or like that means that all the bits of the film that are a bit procedural and are a bit kind of like not explored that well aren't that important if there are if it is educating people if that makes sense i think that line you know one day this will be a tourist attraction for people to walk around and wonder how we let it happen i think that's that's one of the best scenes for me i really like that that scene and that comment and it's really pertinent because and this is another small gripe I have with with the ending of the film, where it's flashing up the kind of you know the text of letting you know how it's played out. Is that the film? It doesn't it doesn't mention the awful fact that Guantanamo Bay is still open. You know, I, I checked this morning. There's there are forty prisoners still in there, most of whom have been there for nearly two decades without charge or trial. You know, Obama tried and failed to shut it. Trump wanted to keep it open, and Biden has now said that he wants it closed by the end of by the end of his term. But I kind of thought. I, I had, so I had those mixed emotions at the end of it where I was feeling the sucker punch of like that's you know this is awful and the kind of the teariness of seeing the the images that are presented but also that annoyance like why have you not said you know this is still open yeah um, I think Benedict Cumberbatch has been very outspoken hasn't he about it needing to be closed you touched on it when you were talking before Michael I think that's one of the things that I would have liked more from the film is a bit more of an exploration of America being so up in arms about it and the kind of controversy between people wanting to keep Guantanamo Bay open because they feel it's a very important thing to stop 9-11 from happening again. And that sort of, you get that moment where they're outside the courthouse and people are protesting. But I think I would have liked more of that kind of what the American public, and like you briefly see it at the start with Benedict Cumberbatch talking to a lady at his church where you kind of get the sense of, the public's opinion and the public's thoughts about Guantanamo Bay and about what's happening. But I think I would have liked a little bit more of an exploration of that side of things and like what the public opinion of it all was. Also, I think special props to Benedict Cumberbatch for very realistically making a character with a very silly accent quite believable. Because when he first started talking, um, me and Sarah that I was watching it with both kind of went like, oh, all right, that's a, that's a bit of an accent there. But, but as the film went on, I didn't, notice it as being an odd accent so yeah props to him for speaking out against Guantanamo Bay and also making that ridiculous accent quite believable yeah I found that a bit jarring didn't you because I guess because you know he's you know he is so recognizable that accent I found a little bit jarring 
Um, yeah, I, I kind of was shocked by Benedict Cumberbatch's accent to start with. And I, I actually think it's just because it was strange to see it coming out of his mouth, this, this strong southern drawl. So I immediately thought like, oh, this is ridiculous. But then I was actually, as I was watching it, I noticed it less and less. And, and since reflecting on it, I think that is how some people in America talk. Um, and it just sounds a bit strange to us because I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's strange seeing Sherlock speak that way. But I think in the end, he's just a really good actor. Yeah. And I think he had the accent nailed. But yeah, it was just funny seeing it coming out of his mouth, knowing he speaks basically with received pronunciation. Great. So that's the, the Mauritanian. Uh, it's available on Amazon Prime, free to stream at the moment. And yeah, it's up for some Oscar awards. Uh, let's talk about what else we've been watching this week. Uh, have, have either of you been watching anything slightly lighter fare? Sam, do you want to go first? Um, so, I mean, it is slightly... Well, to be fair, I think anything would be lighter than the subject matter of the Mauritanian. Um, but one of the films I watched this week is, I suppose you could say, is another classic procedural drama. This one that I watched is Akira Kurosawa's High and Low, which is a classic police procedural from 1963. Um, so the film tells the story of Kingo Gondo, who's played by one of Kurosawa's favourite actors, Tishiro Mifune, um, who's the executive of a shoe company who becomes a victim of extortion when his chauffeur's son is kidnapped and held for ransom. So the whole film basically just plays out as this police procedural of them trying to solve this crime of what's happened and who the kidnapper is, getting the son back, paying the ransom, etc, etc, which on paper sounds like it should be quite, yeah, by the numbers and quite pedestrian, as it were. But obviously, because it's Akira Kurosawa that's putting it together, it's an absolute masterclass and a sensational version of that kind of tried and tested story. Every element of the classic police procedural is there. So there's the moments where they're on the phone in the victim's house um, wiretapping the conversation. And there's the scene where they go to deliver the ransom money to the kidnappers. And there's an incredible scene in the middle where there's a whole room of detectives that are basically just standing up and taking it in turns to give evidence. So they're like, oh, these guys have done a bit of research on the car. So they stand up and deliver their evidence. And then another bunch of people deliver their evidence. And that's literally all that happens. But it's one of the most compelling and engaging pieces of cinema I've seen in a while. And it's and I know it's going to be a very controversial take for this podcast to say Akira Kurosawa is an incredible filmmaker. But let me be the first to say Akira Kurosawa is an incredible filmmaker. Um, yeah, it's just... An I disagree with you. I disagree. <laughs> Never heard of him. Rubbish. Yeah, I'm just I'm just going to champion a very underground filmmaker here, guys. It's called Akira Kurosawa. Um, yeah, it's just like an absolute masterclass. It's one of those films that you watch where you all of a sudden see a lot of parallels to other films. That you're like, oh, this is why people do those scenes of interrogation like this. This is why people like film wiretapping scenes in this way. Like it's just an absolute masterclass in it. And it's got a lot of um, a lot of parallels you could make with films like Parasite in that it tries to kind of talk about the upper class and the lower class and kind of give you a bit more of an explanation behind some people's motives. I don't think it necessarily does that as well as Parasite does. The idea of kind of you're not quite sure who you're siding with and you can totally understand every character's motivation. Um, a few of the characters are painted a bit in broad strokes, but at the end of the day, every single moment of this film is some pure, 
Akira Kurosawa-based genius, and I don't think I can recommend it highly enough. It was a real great film. And also one of those ones where it's like two hours 20, and you don't really notice notice at all that it's two hours 20. Like, again, it's not a controversial thing for me to say that Akira Kurosawa's High and Low is a great film, but that's the the hill I'm dying on today. (laughs) And where can you find this? Um, so I got the, I just have had the DVD of it that I'd bought somewhere along the way, but um, I'm pretty sure it's available to rent in various places or just have a look in CEX. They might have a copy. Who knows? Right. Yeah. Due to open on Monday, isn't it? Uh, along yeah. with all other non-essential shops. Just to, just to <laughs> date the podcast. <laughs> Bill, what about you? What have you watched this week? Um, so I, again, after, after, being disturbed by the Mauritanian, I needed a little bit of a palate cleanser and um, just to be cheered up. So I chose The Way, Way Back, which is a 2013 film um, by directed by Nat Faxon and Jim Rash. Uh, and it stars Liam James, Sam Rockwell, Tony Collette, Steve Carell and Alison Jenny. A fantastic cast. Straight off the bat, read those names out. You know, they're going to bring it. Um, it's a come of, coming of age um, comedy drama about a uh, lonely, misanthropic teen who goes on holiday with his mother and a new boyfriend and basically has a miserable time. Um, it, it does what it says on the tin. Um, these sort of films, you know, it's sort of got that indie kind of vibe. You can imagine how it's sort of shot and looks already and really kind of um, relies on the cast and the and the script to, uh, to, to, to bring its main value. But... That said, I think it does everything really well. Um, and I think it's sort of elevated by some of the performances. Alison Jenny playing uh, a character that's whirled away from um, CJ in the West Wing. In uh, the, She's a single, slightly alcoholic mother who uh, says outrageous things. Um, and, but the film is stolen by Sam Rockwell, who is brilliant as a motor-mouthed water park manager who takes the, uh, the, the young main character under his wing and he's just this sort of charismatic presence that you really would want to be friends with. He's uh, he's larger than life, but also quite believable. And he has these incredibly good um, monologues, incredibly funny monologues, where it's just sort of like a stream of consciousness of him just talking nonstop in sort of like a almost like a stand-up routine. It's really funny, but it's a real testament to his his um, skills as an actor that he makes it quite believable. Um, and because no one's that funny in real life, um, no one's no one's friends with anyone that funny in real life either. You know, I certainly am not you two. Um, but yeah, Sam, Sam Rockwell is is brilliant in this, and and yeah, makes him believable, but also outrageously funny the film itself you know i don't think it'll shock you um at all the sort of beats it hits but i think it really perfectly captures that bittersweet ache of of summer's past and the fact that they're fleeting and they and they pass um but that's what makes them so beautiful and uh, such great memories and um yeah i think i think really enjoy it um it is available on disney plus so if you want to fund uh, Walt's frozen head in the stream wars um catch the way way back did it not feel slightly narcissistic watching a film about people complaining about being on a holiday yeah i did I, there was the scenes where he's like going on a fishing trip with his awful um stepdad on a boat and i thought you know what are you <laughs> what are you moaning about I'd, I'd love to be with a stepdad that i don't have on a on a boat so um yeah that, that'd be lovely <laughs> right now Oh man, I I haven't seen that one, but like I will watch anything with Sam Rockwell in it. I think he's one of those actors that, even in a film where the, it's not particularly great, he always always delivers. Excellent. 
Uh, so I've got a, a couple of films I just wanted to talk about this week. And unfortunately, unlike you, I, I did continue going down a bit of a, a, a dark avenue this week, unfortunately. <laughs> so I watched uh, Roland Joff's 1986 religious epic, The Mission, uh, which won the Cannes Palme d'Or of that year. It stars Jeremy Irons and Robert De Niro. Uh, and a young Liam Neeson, actually, uh, as Jesuit priests in an 18th century mission in South America. And they are, they're bringing Christianity to the local people. And they both have very different backgrounds. So Jeremy Irons is more traditionally devout, and De Niro is more a repentant slaver. And their mission then comes under threat from the Treaty of Madrid, which reapportions the land from Spanish to Portuguese colonists uh, who uh, the Spanish had protected the missions and the Portuguese want to exploit the areas for slaving. So it's a beautiful film. Uh, the, the locations are absolutely stunning. I mean, it's the centered around the, the Iguazu Falls, which just look absolutely incredible. Uh, it, it has one of the great musical scores by Ennio Morricone. Um, and it, the, it has some, a couple of really understated central performances that are still really effective. It's a powerful subject matter. It's about the power of faith, community, the politics behind the scenes, and then the horror of colonialism on the part of Europe. Although, thankfully, not Britain in this instance. It's nice to nice to hate other other Western country, European countries for a change. Uh, but it's another of those films where you come away feeling really quite sick at the you know, the crimes against humanity committed in the name of the West and in the name of early capitalism and progress. Uh, so that's the mission. Uh, I got it from Cinema Paradiso, but it's available on uh, VOD platforms. I I don't know if you guys remember the the poster of that film and the, the front cover that was on the, the DVDs and videos. And it's 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 Robert De Niro. Bobby De Niro stood in front of a waterfall with with long hair and a, a flowing sort of blouse, and he's, he's he's pointing a sword at you. And it kind of makes it look like a a swashbuckler or like a uh, yeah a nineties sort of Robin Hood sort of thing. Um, and I remember when I was a young man. Um, going into uh, Choices Video Store and renting this, thinking that that's what I was going to get. I was going to get a, a, a bodice-ripping swashbuckler full of sword fights and daring do. Um, and that is not what this film is. So, yeah, I remember watching that as a, as a young teen. And, um, yeah, pretty uh, pretty different to, to what I was expecting. So be wary. I think it's slightly false advertising. There's very few um, duels that happen underneath waterfalls, which is what I kind of wanted. But incredibly brilliant film despite that also the mission soundtrack is so good that i've listened to the soundtrack but i haven't actually seen the film yet so the soundtrack has made it made a name for itself before the film has even crossed my eyes yeah definitely well it's definitely the case for me as well up until this week second one i just wanted to talk about was uh sea spiracy so this is a new documentary by young british filmmaker ali tabrizi and produced by kip anderson who uh, was the director of cowspiracy uh, this uh, has just come onto Netflix. It's generated a huge amount of interest on social media and seems to have generated a lot of discussion about its subject matter, which is essentially commercial fishing industry and the devastation it's wreaking on the world's oceans and marine life. Um, and it's another one of those films where you know I came away thinking, oh, great, so now I can't eat fish either. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, not that any of this, <clears throat> as a lot of people have mentioned, not not that any of this is particularly new or revelatory. You know, there was a documentary that I watched uh, called the, the End of the Line in 2009, which covered a lot of the same ground. But this, you know, the good thing about this is that it is exposing this issue to a, a Netflix audience. 
and some of the issues and the stats that it highlights are quite jaw-dropping. You know, it makes the case basically that commercial fishing is far worse than plastic pollution for the oceans, and yet plastic pollution is where the bulk of our attention is. You know, governments and marine conservation groups, you know, they're trying to shift micro behaviours like not using plastic straws, uh, and the film argues that this is essentially nonsense, and we really need to try start drastically rethinking how we do industrial scale fishing. Uh, and, you know, one of the main areas of reform it highlights is on the, the policing and the regulation side. And there's a shocking focus where the, where the film does really well, is it? It's a shocking focus on the, the MSC, you know, the kind of those blue tick logos that you see on tins of tuna or whatever. You know, they're so ubiquitous and perhaps they are so ubiquitous because, uh, as this film reveals, they get around 80% of their annual income from licensing that logo to food producers. So essentially, the more logos there are on tins, the more money they get. And it's the same with the dolphin safe regulator as well. The film makes the case that there is no way of ensuring any of the products that claim themselves to be dolphin safe actually are. Um, so it should be said that you know, it has this film has courted quite a lot of controversy for some quite glaring statistical inaccuracies and misrepresentations. And some of those who were interviewed for the film have condemned the film uh, for sort of cherry picking their, their comments. Uh, and it is true that it does adopt a sensationalist tone that I think is to the film's disservice and Ali Tabrizi isn't he isn't perhaps the most adept presence or interviewer uh, he's he's no John Pilger he's no Louis Theroux uh, but he is a new talent so and it, this is an impressive debut uh, so and I think you know the film has been endorsed by some some of those people who feature in the film sort of like George Monbiot who's an environmental journalist for The Guardian he's what he's one of those journalists that you know I kind of you know you certain journalists you just sort of trust their integrity and and he's one of them for me so I think that's as good an endorsement for me as I needed for to watch the film but yeah go into it expecting to do some reading around afterwards keep a skeptical mind on some of the stats you know I have to say it does use graphics really well to present the stats uh, that's one of the things that the film does really well but the broad thrust is really important and you know I think it will change you know or, or hopefully start moving a lot of people towards changing their attitudes and behaviors towards this this issue so that's uh that's seaspiracy and that's on uh, on netflix now uh yeah thanks for that mate really looking forward to my fish and chips i'm gonna have tonight as long as it's dolphin safe nice bleak bleak ending there michael thank you very much everyone have a great week thanks for listening <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Uh, so next week, uh, you know, we're we're going to lighten it up uh, with we're going to be talking about the sci-fi rom-com Palm Springs from Max Barbacow. Light affair next week, I think. But we had to have a, we had to have a change away from big monsters smashing things. <laughs> We've got to prove our films, our cineasty credentials again by talking about serious things yeah, and endorsing Kurosawa. Important, very <laughs> brave, brave stance from this podcast. Brave. Uh, so yeah, thank you very much indeed for for listening. If you have enjoyed it, please do uh, recommend us to your friends. Please leave reviews uh, wherever you get your wherever you get your podcasts, uh, and follow us on social media. I've been Michael Brooks. Thank you to Sam Oliver. Thank you to Bill King. We'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Goodbye for now. Good night and good luck. <laughs>